So turn in your Bibles to the book of Isaiah this morning as uh, we're going to take a two-week break from our series out of the book of Colossians uh, to focus in on the Christmas season. We did not this year do a Christmas series as we did last year. Uh, And so it was hard to figure out what what part of the Christmas story did I want to speak about? What what part of the the characters, uh, you know, what focus did I want only having one week? And as you look behind me, I didn't know this, and maybe I'm oblivious at times of the things that are around, or the song that we sang this morning. I chose the book of Isaiah, and here it's decorated behind us. We sung about it in our first song today. The names of Jesus Christ through the prophet Isaiah, where he speaks of our wonderful counselor, mighty God, uh, everlasting Father, and and Prince of Peace. And the reason why I want to preach on this subject matter this morning is because I think that we can at times allow our Christmas celebration, especially as adults, if we've celebrated it for any amount of time, I'm now moving on to my fourth dozen Christmases that I'm a part of now, going into uh, soon my 40s, and and Christmas can become rote. It can become a tradition where I enjoy the time off more than I enjoy, if you will, the opportunity to remember and celebrate the real reason of Christmas. And and my hope through this message is, is that it would shake off some of the cobwebs, some of the dust of our celebration and bring back some of the wonder. In Luke chapter 2, Mary uh, is said to have uh, treasured and pondered all that she saw and heard that first Christmas. And I hope and pray that we would treasure and ponder uh, the celebration of the season and not lose sight of what it really is all uh, a part of it. And to do so, I want to look at a passage of scripture that was written hundreds of years before Jesus would enter into Bethlehem. I want to turn our attention to the prophet Isaiah this morning in Isaiah chapter 9. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, you can find that pew Bible in the pew rack in front of you, and you can find our passage on page 573, page 573. And I want to look at what Isaiah has to say to the people of his day. He speaks to them in a time where things weren't going well, and he wants to turn their attention back to their God, back to the one who loves them so very much. During Isaiah's time, people had given up hope. They had lost their joy because there was no peace in the land. And and Isaiah is going to share to the people of Israel in his day and to us today that one was coming, a promised one, one who would minister and lead his people with all wisdom and strength. Uh, He would conquer our fears and conquer our sin, and he would be the one who would restore all things back to himself. And Isaiah shares this in Isaiah chapter 9, and I want to read it, hoping that we will see the wonder and praise of the one who is coming and the one we wait for today to come again a second time to hear the name of Jesus. So let us stand for the reading of God's word, and let's jump right into this text. Um, Let's look at Isaiah chapter 9, starting in verse 1 through verse 7. Here's what it says. But there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. Uh, But in the latter time, he made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. 
For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder and the rod of his oppressor you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born. For us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Father God, we pray for your blessing on the reading of your word, the preaching of it, the hearing and applying of it to our lives. Transform us, Lord, to become more like you. Make us be filled with the wonder and astonishment of what it means that you put on flesh and made your dwelling among us. What it meant to behold your glory, the glory of the one and only who is full of grace and truth. It is him we speak of. It is him that we thank. It is him that we worship this morning. Jesus Christ, King of kings and Lord of lords. It's in his name we pray. Amen and amen. You may be seated. Have you ever thought the question, what's in a name? Maybe why you're named the way you are? The story behind it, the person maybe you've been named after? I've shared this before, but my name is Timothy Daniel. For those who have been around, you know that my name is Timothy. Not because Timothy was a pastor in the Bible years ago when I was born, of course. Pastoring wasn't even thought of uh, for my, my life. At least that's not what my parents were thinking. But I was named Timothy because the, the biblical character Timothy uh, was a, a son born of a mixed marriage. Timothy's mom was Jewish. Timothy's dad was Greek. And I, too, am a, a child born of a mixed marriage. My father is, is uh, an Iraqi-born immigrant of Assyrian ancestry. My mom is, of course, an American with European ancestry. And they wanted to remind me that I come from a, a, a husband and wife, a mom and a dad, who have very, very different backgrounds, very, very different beginnings, very, very different cultures. And, and I've come to know and recognize that. But my parents also named me Daniel, not after anybody in particular in our family. But they named me after um, uh, the character in the Bible. While my brothers are both named after people within our family, for whatever reason, maybe they didn't want me to be associated with them, they named me after two biblical characters. And Daniel, of course, is the character uh, in the Scriptures, uh, the man who, who uh, was effective for God and effective for his kingdom. But he was effective in a land that God's name was not worshipped. God's name was not revered. And yet Daniel proved himself to be a faithful man, both in the eyes of men and in the eyes of his God. Even when it seemed like the world was standing against Daniel, Daniel stood strong for God. And I hope that in some ways my parents have seen the truth of, of the names that they've given me to echo out through my life. But names also tell a story not only of people, 
but of businesses. And many of you know that I, I run a catering business in my spare time, of course. And uh, the name of the company is 5B's Catering. And many of you may not know why it's named that. Well, five comes from the number of, of people that were in my family when the company was started in 1979. There was mom and dad, Chris, Tim, and Joel. There's the five. Our last name is Bedal. And so uh, we are the five Bedals. And uh, we wanted our name to be connected with it. But but the logo that we have is a bunch of bees. And where did that come from? The five bees. Well, my grandmother in 1979, when describing to a friend what the Badals looked like when we were catering, the answer was, is they are as busy as a bunch of bees. And so that's the name and the story behind the five bees catering. I want to make you aware that this is a phenomenon called an aptramen. An aptramen. It, it's a word, this aptronym, is a word that is used as a name that aptly suits its owner. And we've got them all over. I wish I could spend the time to talk about them all. But I want to share some real-life aptronyms, if you will. Names of people that tell us a little bit about who they are or their mission in life. So here's a couple examples of it. Uh, William Headline is the Atlanta bureau chief for CNN. How do you like that? How about uh, in San Diego, a, a Dr. Ted Bowser, who is a veterinarian. How about a Seattle chiropractor named Otto Wack? Some of you aren't getting it. That's all right. Talk to the person sitting next to you. If you don't believe these things to be true, how about Bernie Madoff? You've all heard of Bernie Madoff, who made off with millions of dollars from other people. I didn't think this one was real, but there is a barber named Dan Druff. You guys, there's a delay with you guys. Amanda didn't think this was true, and I had to show it to her, but there is actually a Dr. Pullenhard, the dentist... How about Jules Angst, the German professor of psychiatry, best known for his works on anxiety. Get it? Angst? Anxiety? Uh, okay. How about Sonia Shears, the hairdresser? Sue Yu, the lawyer. Again, if you think I'm making things up, if you've been in the Fox Valley area for some time, you've no doubt, and I know some know this individual as I do, Rick Law, the attorney. This is going to gross you out. How about Dr. Whitehead, the dermatologist? <laughs> and I know you don't want to admit it, but you've, you have visited Dr. Tom Smelzy, the podiatrist. Now, there's one that I, I asked uh, uh, Keith and Kate and Amanda whether I should share it. They said no. Really, the ladies said no. I blamed Keith on it in the first service, but the ladies said no. So for extra credit, if you want to hear another one, you come talk to me at the end of the service, and I'll share it with you. But these are names of people, okay, where their names de describe and show us what their life's mission is, what their job and occupation is. And in Isaiah, we get four names of Jesus. Us. Four names of the Messiah who is going to come. Now I want you to remember that Jesus literally is Jehovah saves. And Jesus wasn't a name that only Jesus Christ was given, the son of Mary and Joseph, but that many boys had been named Jesus in those days. And we need to recognize that Jesus' name tells us what he was going to do. And in Isaiah chapter 9, Isaiah shares, without knowing the name of Jesus, shares four names that declare what type of Messiah he would be. He would be a wonderful counselor. He would be a mighty God. He would be an everlasting father. He would be prince of peace. And to understand this Jesus, 
to understand this celebration of Christmas and all that it involves, we have to understand these names this morning. And so behind these names is a person, the person of Jesus Christ. And it is in Jesus this Christmas that we find, number one, write this down, the answer for our corruption. The answer for our corruption. Notice in verse 1 of chapter 9. Isaiah begins the chapter with the word but in the ESV or nevertheless in the NIV. Now that seems like an odd way to start a chapter uh, of the Bible. Now I want you to remember chapter breaks weren't in there. Isaiah didn't like this. I'm going to start chapter 9 here. They've added them, the translators have, for us to be able to find passages of Scripture uh, in a much easier way. And so sometimes chapter breaks can do us great disservice because they put the break in the middle of a thought. And I want you to notice that in chapter 9, it starts with a contrast. And to understand the contrast, we've got to go back to chapter 8 and understand what in the world's going on in Isaiah's day. And notice what verse 21 and 22 says. It says they're going to pass through the land, greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and they will speak contemptuously against their king and their God. And they'll turn their faces upward and they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish. They will be thrust into thick darkness. Notice those words, distressed, hungry, enraged, full of contempt, distress and darkness, gloom and anguish, finally being thrust into thick darkness. Merry, Merry Christmas. Right? That doesn't sound very winsome. That doesn't sound very pleasant. That doesn't sound like a, a season of celebration. But that is exactly the season and the time that Isaiah finds himself in. That the people of Judah and, and Israel were living in times of great sorrow. They had thought that God had proved himself faithless during those times because the invading army of Assyria had come in and decimated their land. They had thought God had given up, but he hadn't. Not at all. But the people had. In the text it says over and over again in chapter 8 that they had given up on the word of the Lord, that they had pursued the things of this world, that they began to listen to the words of the world. In verse 8 of chapter, uh, I'm sorry, verse uh, 19 of chapter 8, they sought out diviners and, and sorcerers to seek the will of the gods. And instead of turning to their God, they turned to uh, everything else in this world. And they pursued those things. They made them the priority instead of making God a priority. And yet God was extremely and utterly faithful to the promises and to his people. He brings them under the judgment of the Assyrians who would crush them and, and humble them so much that they might return to God. In, in verse, nine, verse 2 of chapter 9, some translations say that they were living in a time that was like the shadow of death. This was not a good time. And while many for us today, Christmas is a season of joy and peace. And yet studies after studies show us that the season of Christmas is a time of distress and depression. The more, the more, that more people visit a psychologist and counselors during this time than any other time of the year. And there's a lot of reasons why. But I believe that for many, just as in Isaiah's day, we as people have sought to fill our lives with things that are going to leave us wanting for more. 
And it's causing us to be filled with all sorts of depression, all sorts of anxiety. We have this idea that before the end of this year, something will turn around. There will be a gift under the tree that certain someone will, will make a movement towards us that will make our lives better, that, that our life will be fulfilled in some way because of the Christmas season. And, and, and the season comes and it goes and we find ourselves not being filled with anything more than a little extra weight around the waistline and a whole lot emptier of bank accounts because we bought what we thought would bring us joy. And many of us today, as followers of Jesus Christ, have fulfilled our Christmas, have filled our Christmas celebrations with this type of celebration. Oh, it's not that Jesus isn't a part of the celebration, but he's, he's, he's not center stage anymore. Someone else has taken uh, center stage. I, I was driving by and I wanted to take a picture of this and show you, but I was afraid if I got up close enough to take the picture, I would be arrested for trespassing. But, but, a person in our community had a beautiful nativity set set up. You know those plastic ones that have been painted and, and lit up. And we've got Joseph and Mary. We've got the wise men. We've got baby Jesus in the manger. The shepherds are all there. It was great. And, and right before it, right in front of it, was an even bigger plastic Santa on a sleigh. And, and I began to really think, is that what describes my Christmas celebration? That Jesus is there, but he's now second fiddle to the guy in the red suit and the big white beard? And many times we, we focus in on that. Well, Isaiah didn't have Santa Claus. But Isaiah does tell us that instead of filling themselves with the things of God, the people were filling themselves with the things of the world. And maybe today you're like the people of Israel filled with all types of distress and sadness. Maybe you have found that pouring into the things of this world has only returned, um, has returned little. It hasn't changed your life. The gist of the message that Isaiah gives is that one was coming. There was one who was coming that was going to turn their gloom into gladness, their despair into dancing. And maybe today you find yourself living in that gloom and, and despair. You find yourself living in this, the, the life of Isaiah chapter 8. Well, here's my gift to you that amidst doom, gloom, sin, and sadness, Isaiah 9 opens up and says, Nevertheless, there's a new day that has dawned. Jesus Christ has come, and as a result of that, hope and peace is coming to you. But how would that take place? Isaiah says that the Messiah was going to come into this world and he was going to bring three gifts to the world, I believe, that are important for us to recognize. Number one, this Messiah would bring a love that meets us, write this down, a love that meets us in our distress. So add that to your outline, a love that meets us in our distress. The scriptures are clear that Jesus Christ came to seek and to save that which was lost. He did that by demonstrating his love for us in this, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now here's the thing we need to understand. According to chapter 8, they are filled with gloom and anguish. But they never went looking for God. They were happier in their gloom and anguish, if you will, than, than, than opening their eyes and seeing that better days were coming. And here's the amazing thing. Nobody was asking for the Messiah in Isaiah's day. Nowhere in our passage does it say, well, when's this guy going to come? When is this one who's been promised going to come and, and relieve us of this anguish, who's going to rescue us from this pain? No one ever does it. And even though they were involved in their gloom and anguish, they didn't seek after God, they didn't long for an answer, what did they do? The text tells us in chapter 8, they spoke contemptuously against their God, 
And literally, they blamed God for their sad lives. They became, chapter uh, 8 ends by becoming enraged and filled with anguish. So they're complaining. They're angry about their situation, never dawning on them that maybe we should turn to the God of the universe. Maybe we should turn to the God of our patriarchs who have been, has been utterly faithful in his promises. They never do that. And yet, what does God do? He does the unthinkable. While we're cursing and shaking our fists at God as the people in Isaiah did, God sent his one and only son. He demonstrated his love while we were angry with him and blamed our sad, pathetic lives on him. He turns around and he shares love and grace personified in the person of his son at Christmas. He loved us so that we might in turn know how to love him back. Even though we didn't deserve it and didn't desire it, God gave it to us and showered it upon us. He sent Jesus to be born in Bethlehem, to show love to a world of hatred. And here's the amazing thing. You would have thought we would have gotten it the moment that baby came. But the part of the, or the story of Christmas, one of the parts of the story that's hard for us to swallow, is that King Herod is the first one to hate him, to want to kill him. And human history has told us that it's been, it's been Herod, and it's been a long line of Herod ever since out to kill Jesus, the one who came to show us love. So maybe Christmas for you this season is filled with despair and trouble. Remember that we are told that Christmas is the season of good news, of great joy, because he has brought love in a world of despair. Notice number two, he brought light in the world of darkness. In verse one and two, it tells us that those who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. Notice the contrast that Isaiah gives. Deep. Deep, deep darkness. In contrast to the one who is going to come, great, great light. Again, this reminds us in their deep darkness of our position in our sin. We're living in darkness. And no doubt many of us have tried to walk in a room that's filled with darkness. And the trouble comes that we run into obstacles and, and we trip over all manner of things. And that is what living with Christ is like. A walking in total darkness, stumbling and falling over things. Scholars in this passage talk about the life that Judah was living during this time was a life of total hindrances and all-out trouble. They were stumbling away through their lives. And here, amidst that darkness, amidst us slumber, or slumbering and, and, and falling down into things that we shouldn't, Christ comes and he lights up our world. In John chapter 8, verse 12, we are told that Jesus, in fact, he says this of himself, I am the light of the world. He came as a light of light to the world to draw all men to himself, men and women who are in utter darkness. It's no wonder that some of the first worshipers of Jesus would be men who were led by a light in the sky, a star that shines so bright that it would lead them to Jesus. Jesus brought love to a world of despair. He brought light to a world of darkness. Thirdly, he brought life to a world of death. Death, a word that scares us. A word that brings chills on the warmest of July days. In verse 2, many translations say, 
that the people were living in the shadow of death. To a people who had been killed, seen their families destroyed, their homes taken away from them, their way of life taken away, and enemy armies trampling over their land. Isaiah says that instead of darkness and death, Christmas would be a new day that would dawn. For the one who was going to come, he would vanquish the oppressor. He would divide the spoils. He would break the yoke of slavery and destroy the armies of destruction. Jesus was going to bring life. Jesus said this of himself in John chapter 10 when he says the the devil comes, the enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But I've come that you may have life and have it in all abundance. You see, the story of Christmas was that Jesus, this baby, was born into a world of gloom and despair and anguish to bring joy back to the world. That's why we sing joy to the world. Let earth receive her king. But what's this king going to be like? What's this Messiah going to be like? Notice the second point, the attributes of Christ. Who is this promised one? What is he going to be like? And notice that it it starts out in verse 6, for to us a child is born. For us a son is given. Let's stop there for a moment. I don't want to miss this. When Isaiah shares two statements about the same thing, we must recognize in in biblical writing, wherever there's any form of repetition, it adds significance to what is being said. So Isaiah is saying, hey, I want you to listen to what is being said. We're going to have a child that is born. We're going to have a son who is given, saying it of the same person. But not only is it important for us to hear that Messiah is coming, But in these words, we also get prophetic words about what this Messiah would be like. Notice, he'd be different than anything we've ever known or seen. Number one, he's a child that is born. This speaks of the humanity of Jesus, the humanity of the Messiah that was going to come. God's answer to our sin, God's answer to our darkness, God's answer to our despair would not be an angel or a phantom or some non-human entity. He would be a child who would be born of a mother, and he would be united with us in our humanity. He would look like us. He would feel like us. He would live like us. He would be so much like us that we would miss it if we didn't know what we were looking for. He would have all the blessings and trappings of our human existence. He would be just like one of us. But notice he goes on, Isaiah does, and he says a son is given. And this speaks of the Messiah's deity. Because a son being given doesn't speak of his existence starting at the point of his birth. But that we see that the Messiah, Jesus Christ, while his earthly existence had a starting point in the manger of Bethlehem, his life would have no beginning because Jesus is the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. John reminds us of this truth in John 1, 1, where it says that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. And unlike the cults of our day, we do not believe in a God, a Messiah, listen, who was created. We'll talk about this in our next passage of Colossians, but we don't believe that God created Jesus, No, Jesus was with God in the beginning. So we do not believe, as the Jehovah's Witness do, that he is some created being like one of the angels. No, Jesus is God. 
We do not believe that Jesus was simply a man who lived such a righteous and good life that he would become like God as the Mormons or Latter-day Saints believe. No, brothers and sisters, we believe that long before Isaiah's writings, long before the creation of the world, Jesus was with God and the Spirit as one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And at some point in eternity past, Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, made a decision to put on flesh and make his dwelling among us, to enter into our time and our space and our humanity as a child in the manger. And he would do that because he loved us. But how are we to know him? Isaiah says, you want to know this child, this son that was going to be given? You will know him because he's going to be a wonderful counselor. Notice the profound counsel that he's going to bring. Literally in the Hebrew, wonderful counselor speaks of a wonder of counsel. One who acts and, and thinks beyond the bounds of human comprehension. One whose thoughts and whose mind is amazing and magnificent and marvelous. In Judges 13, 18, a passage we studied last summer, we studied the life of Samson. And Samson is, Samson's parents are visited by the angel of the Lord. Angel of the Lord in Old Testament times literally uh, is the pre-Christmas Jesus. That is Jesus before he entered his humanity, before he entered flesh in Bethlehem. And when he visits with Samson's mom and dad who have been barren for so long and are now being announced to them that they're going to have a child, Samson's parents call the one that they have visiting them wonderful. And that word wonderful in the Hebrew language literally is translated as incomprehensible. He's unthinkable. He's, un he's so amazing. Our mind can't comprehend all that is being uh, given to us. Well, the book of Romans reminds us of this truth. In Romans chapter 11, after 11 chapters of preaching and proclaiming about this Jesus, the Apostle Paul says this of Christ, Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his ways and how inscrutable his judgments. For who has known the mind of our Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? Listen to how he finishes this chapter. For it is from Christ and through Christ and to Christ are all things. To Christ be glory forever. Amen. So what we have been given is the greatest advisor known to man. These two words that we've connected, wonderful counselor, tells us that Jesus Christ is the greatest counselor and advisor and he is everything that we need for our life and direction and leading to holiness. But sadly, we turn to all others. We turn to our series of counselors who are just as lost and blind as we are. So here we are this Christmas. Our lives are filled with decisions that have to be made. They're filled with all types of unknowns. And aren't you glad you have a counselor in Jesus who is there before the foundations of the world, who can guide you to all truth? 
Aren't you glad you have one who's a counselor who knows you better than you know yourself? Aren't you glad that you have Jesus, the wonderful counselor, who's able to sustain and, and hold the world and all things together by the power of his word? And that means whatever's bothering you on Monday is but small change to the God of the universe. Aren't you glad you have one who never sleeps or tires from giving us wisdom in all facets of life? Are you turning to that counselor this morning? Are you listening to his words of guidance? One who has lived perfectly and only seeks to lead you in holiness? Who boasts that no matter what you are facing, no matter how completely lost you are, Jesus is the answer for you? Oh, what a friend we have in Jesus, the hymn writer says. You have trials and temptations. Is there trouble everywhere? We should never be discouraged, but we should take it to our Lord in prayer. Can we find a friend so faithful who with all our sorrow share? Jesus knows our every weakness. We need to take it to him in prayer. That is why he's our wonderful counselor. Do you know him? Next, we see his powerful character. He's our mighty God. Understand, Jesus is not just like God. He is God. He's more powerful than anything else in this universe. Literally mighty God. He's our valiant warrior. He's our hero. He's our strong man. He's our one who is mighty in battle. He is the king of glory. Now you can take these first two names of Jesus, wonderful counselor and mighty God, and when you put them together... It forms this formula. As counselor, he knows the plans and the ways we ought to go. As mighty God, he sees fit that no one stands in his way. Not only does God counsel us, but he says that he's strong enough to see it brought to fruition according to his will. John MacArthur put it this way, Christ the King loves to step into a world of chaos and bring order to it. Not only to provide counsel, but to give us all the strength we need to face anything that comes our way. So how do we apply this? Listen, whatever you're facing today, whether it's known by others or unknown on, or known only to you, that which seems utterly impossible for you, the thing that strikes fear in your life, the thing that seems so big that you will never overcome it, that issue, that struggle, that person, that problem that you are facing is never, ever going to be bigger than Jesus Christ. He's greater. He's stronger. He's more than we can ever ask for or imagine. And that is why the psalmist said he is our refuge and our strength and ever-present help in times of trouble, even the trouble you face this Christmas. But you see, what we do is we begin to think, well, what can a baby do? What can a baby do to fix my financial issues? What can a baby do to fix my marriage? What can a baby do to fix my child? And let us remember that Jesus Christ grew in wisdom and stature, that he ministered to the multitudes. How? He healed the sick. He contended against the Pharisees. He exercised demons. He performed miracles. And he calmed the stormy sea. And he raised the dead. You don't think that same Jesus, who's the same yesterday, today, and forever, can't deal with our light and momentary trials that we're dealing with in year 2014. He wants you to experience victory. And he wants us to experience this victory by fighting the battles you and I will never win. And the only thing he asks is will we bow the knee and worship him. So what are you struggling with today? 
Give it to your mighty God. Give it to your valiant warrior. He is the mighty one. Do you know him? Number three, notice he's our personal comfort. He's the one who comforts. He's the everlasting father. Now right away you don't want to get confused and say, wait a minute, I thought Jesus was the son in the triune person of the Trinity. Now he's the father? No, what Isaiah is speaking of is not his position within the Godhead. But his practice, his involvement towards his people. Isaiah says this is how this Messiah is going to respond to his people. He's going to be like a father. So how is Jesus like a father to us? Write this down. First, he's like a father because he's given us life. Like our earthly fathers, we are here because of them. And we have spiritual life because of Christ. He's allowed the Spirit to grow in us and through us. He protects and intercedes on our behalf every step of the way. He is like a father in that way. Second, Jesus is like a father because he provides for us. According to Philippians 4.19, we are supplied all that we need according to whom? Christ Jesus and the riches that he has at his disposal. So like a father, he's providing for us. Third, he's like a father because he loves us like his children. That is, he gives us exactly what we need. Jesus calls us as fathers do to cast our cares on him because he cares for us. Just like our earthly fathers, Jesus sacrifices for our good. Just like our fathers, hopefully the godly ones, he is our example that we are to follow. Now, before you think that Jesus is just this good father, notice Isaiah says he's the everlasting one. That word everlasting speaks of significance First of all, because as we know, everlasting means it will go on forever. And some of us this year, as Stephanie has already shared, have lost our parents this year. And that's a reality of this world. And it doesn't make it any easier, but we know that there's a good chance that we will outlive our parents. That our parents one day will not be with us. But I want you to know that Jesus will always be with us. He will never leave us nor forsake us, neither by desertion, but listen, neither by death. I have a great father, and one I wish would be with me forever, but I know my dad cannot say, Tim, I'll be there for you when you're 80 years of age, unless some miracle drug comes out that keeps everybody alive a lot longer. My dad probably doesn't have that amount of time. I cannot guarantee to my children that I'll always be there with them, but Jesus can. He's always there. Second, this word everlasting literally means to be utterly and perfectly consistent in all his dealings. Boy, I wish I could say that to my children. As a dad, I can't. I'm going to mess up. I'm going to make mistakes. I'm going to be sinful, selfish, and I'm going to fail my children. And I'm going to let them down. And I'm going to ruin their days at times. They're going to be unhappy with me. I'm not going to live up to their expectations. But our everlasting Father in Jesus Christ will never do that. He'll be faithful to the end. So maybe today you feel orphaned. Maybe you feel like you've been let down. Maybe someone has hurt you deeply. Run to Jesus. Because he's the one who brings comfort and care. He binds up the brokenhearted. He sets the captives free. And he is the one above all who looks after the orphans and widows in their distress. So maybe you've been let down this Christmas. Turn to him because he'll never let you down. 
He's your everlasting Father. Do you know him? Finally, he's our peaceful countenance. Notice he's the Prince of Peace. Literally in the Hebrew, he is the Prince who is coming to bring peace. The phrase there was not Isaiah's. He is not the one who came up with Prince of Peace. It was used over and over again in Isaiah's day. The people that heard this would fully recognize what was being articulated. The Prince of Peace was a, a word that was used of two warring nations. That a king, instead of sending his generals to go talk to the, uh, the other side, to, to wage war against them, a king would make a decision that he would send, instead of a general, he would send his son, the prince, and the prince that brings peace. And so that the other nation that was about to war with his nation would know, I don't want war, I want peace. I don't want to fight you. I want to live with you. I want to com have commerce with you. I want to relate to you as, as neighbors. I want you to understand this. The story of Christmas and the, 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 the first Christmas is a celestial reminder to us that God wants to be at peace with his people. You need to recognize that God could have sent his angels his generals, the archangels, Michael and Gabriel, he could have sent them. And he could have sent them to destroy us. And, and, and if you remember, everybody who spotted the angels, they were scared to death. Because that's what angels do. But each of the angels said, fear not. And notice what Gabriel says. Fear not, I bring you good news of great joy. When the angels on, on the countryside visited the, the shepherds, they said, glory to God in the highest, and peace, not war, with those whom he has pleased. Jesus wants to send you peace this morning. Peace with God, Romans 5.1. Peace with one another, and the peace of mind that transcends all understanding will guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. No matter what's causing you turmoil this morning, turn to Jesus and let him calm your heart as he did the troubled sea. This Christmas we celebrate no ordinary birth, no ordinary man. We celebrate the greatest event in human history where God became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Christmas is where we behold the glory of the one and only who was full of grace and truth. Christmas is where the God of the universe gave of himself a gift to you and to me, to be our wonderful counselor, to be our mighty God, to be our everlasting Father and our Prince of Peace, who would come and destroy the works of sin and the works of the devil, who would lay down his life for you and me, who would be dead and buried, but by the Father's will would be raised from the dead and who ascended to heaven and who sits at the mighty right hand of the Father. This is what Christmas is all about. But as Christians who look back to Christmas, we must recognize that the reminder and remembrance of that first Christmas reminds us, listen, that there is an advent yet to come. Let me close very quickly with this point. 
The prophecy that we see in Isaiah shows us over and over again of the first advent in Bethlehem, the one who is going to come. But notice in verse 7 that there's the increase of his government and, and of peace. There will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. There sure does seem to be some future aspects to this. And it reminds us that there's a time that is coming, listen, when Jesus Christ will not come as a cooing baby, but as a conquering king. That he will come not to be placed under the rule of Herod as a citizen or that of Caesar Augustus, but that he alone will bring all things under his feet. Let me tell you, brothers and sisters, it will be a time of great distress, not a time of peace. Because he will not come as the Prince of Peace in that moment. He will come as the ruling general of the armies of God. And so that reminds us of something. It reminds us that as Christians who look back to Christmas, that we are to respond in two ways. Number one, we are to live holy and upright lives. Uh, in, in the book of Titus, a passage that we've studied before, let me read this to you. Titus 2, 11 through uh, th uh, 14, gives us this, this picture. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people. Well, when did that happen, Titus? It happened at Christmas. Grace has appeared. And because of Christmas, it's trained us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. So as we look back to Christmas, we see we're to live differently. Because of our mighty God, our Prince of Peace, our everlasting Father, and our wonderful Counselor, that Jesus should change us. But as we live those upright lives, there's an expectation, not of the past, but of the future, waiting, he says, for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So we look forward to the day when Christ will return, that he'll make his second advent here. And notice, what are we to do? We are to purify ourselves, verse 14 says, and be a people for his own possession who are zealous for the works of God. Remember what Isaiah 7 said. How is all this going to take place? The zeal of the Lord. The zeal of the Lord will do it. So what are we called to this Christmas? We are called to be zealous for the same things that God is zealous for. And the story of Christmas reminds us of this. And it asks the question, this Christmas, are you zealous for the things of the Lord? Do you worship Him as the shepherds did? Do you seek Him out as the wise men did? did you, do you treasure and ponder Christ as Mary did? Do you make Christ the priority as Joseph did? Do you long for Jesus as Simeon and Anna did? You know, we hear a lot about the spirit of Christmas this time of year. Let me tell you, the true spirit of Christmas is a humble and contrite heart that seeks to honor God in all ways. So let's do it. Finally, we've got to let others know. Throughout Luke and Matthew's Gospels, we see that once people encountered the Christ of Christmas... They went out telling people the awesome things that God had done. This week, Village Bible Church, you have an opportunity as you gather with family and friends to speak of the praises of Jesus who called you out of darkness and brought, him, brought you into his wonderful light. Will you do it? 
Will you share the good news of Jesus? It says that when the, uh, the shepherds shared the good news of, of what they had seen and heard, everyone was amazed. Would you pray today that when you share the message of Christ in Christmas, that your family and friends would be amazed by what they hear? That they would ask questions? My prayer this, this week is before this season is over and passes away, that we would take some time to reacquaint ourselves with the Messiah who came, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, Jesus, this Jehovah saves Christ, and that we would never lose the wonder of it all. Make this Christmas purposeful by bringing the person of Christ back into it. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you and we thank you for your word. And I pray that we would take this prophecy from the book of Isaiah and it would strengthen our hearts. It would encourage us. It would mobilize us and, and move us to live differently. Lord, I pray that whatever may be distressing us, whatever may be bringing gloom and anguish into our lives, Lord, I know of it. As people speak to us as pastors, we hear the pain and the sorrow that people are facing today. Lord, that they would run to Jesus and they would know that you make all things new. So, Lord, I pray that we would make that our default, to get close with you, to pursue intimacy with you, so that we might see you fully revealed, not only as the baby that came in a, in a cradle, but the baby that would grow to be a man who would embrace the cross. But not only the baby in the cradle and the, the man at the cross, but we would see the God with the crown this Christmas. And Lord, because of that, it would move us to say no to sin and ungodliness and to pursue you. Because it's in you we find life. It's you that we find light. It's in you we find love. Let us celebrate that this Christmas, Father, so that you might be brought glory, that you may be brought back into our celebrations that you would be the greatest gift of it all. Now, Lord, send us forth. We're busy. There's much on our schedules. Let us not forget the reason why we do all these things. Jesus. Jesus. His name is Jesus. Thank you. It's in his son's name we pray. Amen and amen.